Father, we are talking about prayer this morning, um, and all of us have certain ideas of what prayer is, and maybe it is because of this um, incorrect understanding of prayer that propels us not to pray. But Father, what we're going to talk about here this morning is the, the amazing privilege of what prayer is, how it is vital to life, and how it is one of the reasons in which that you, you saved us so that we can be a people of prayer. So Father, I pray that may guilt not happen here as much as just an amazing understanding of what prayer is. So that, Lord, that after, through this word, through, these, through, through this lesson, Lord, that we will want to pray. That we'll be motivated to pray. Father, we, we pray that will happen here this morning. All these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, it's, uh, it's the fall, right? Um, I like the fact that, you know, the, you know our screensaver this morning was fall, fall colors. And when I think of fall, I think of um, my kids. Because both my kids were born in autumn, right? My daughter was born in September, and my son was born in November. Um, I think that's, I got it right, right? Oh, thanks, Milton. All right, so I got it right. So, so, um, so my, my, my daughter was born in September, and my son was born in November. So it's fall is like birth. I always think about my kids' birthdays there. And my wallet tells me that it's my kids' birthday. And my dad's birthday is in October, so it's like November to October. September to November, it's, then again to December, it's like, oh, financially it's difficult. But so you think about my kids' birth, and I think about especially my daughter's birth because... Not that I love my son any less, but my daughter's birth was much, much more traumatic because I was there, like, witnessing the whole thing, right? The doctor said, can you grab a leg? Like, excuse me? She said, can you grab your wife's leg? And I grabbed my wife's leg, and I saw, right? And so, so you, talk, you think about birth, right? And it, it's, it's not, I think it's related to what we're studying in the Sermon on the Mount. Because Sermon on the Mount is really about the birth of a Christian, right? And how this Christian who's born, what does this newborn Christian looks like? Right? When my kids were born, especially my daughter, my daughter looked like me when, you, when she was like, as soon as she came out, my son was really good looking, so I didn't know who he looked like. But my daughter looked like me. And so, like, you, you have this image of what, 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 like my, what my kid looks like. And, and Sermon on the Mount is really about Jesus' description of what a new birth Christian looks like, right? And so we start with how a Christian is born. And I think that's the theme for the, la- for the last few weeks that we talked about how a Christian is born. And the way the Christian is born is God, his word, and his spirit comes into our hearts and he cracks open our hearts, right? And his word and his spirit enters our hearts, right, in our, in our mind. And that entry of his word and spirit gives us new, transforms us from the inside. That's how a Christian is born, right? The Holy Spirit and the word of God entering into people's mind and hearts to, to give them saving, trusting faith in Jesus Christ. Trusting, saving faith means, like, like, as Donald Trump trusts his money, 
that we trust in Jesus Christ, that there is the, the trust that the faith is really that Christ, he's really the only one that you can trust, trust in. There is no one else in this world that you can trust in but him. That's the t- type of saving faith that is generated when the word of God and the spirit of God enters your mind and your heart. And when that happens, when there's an internal transformation, internal birth, that eventually inevitably leads to external behavioral changes. The internal birth causes external changes. And the Sermon on the Mount describes what these external changes look like. If there is an internal regenerating birth inside you, Sermon on the Mount also tells us how that such a person who has been changed on the inside, who has been born anew, how that person lives. And what we talk about today is how that person lives. How does an internally transformed, newborn person live? That person prays. That's what Jesus is saying. One of the clear evidences that you are made new is that you are a person of prayer. Right? And the moment I say you are a person of prayer, I see some of you feeling like a little guilty. <laughs> because I think prayer, like evangelism and reading the Bible and, you know, vegetables, is something that we know we ought to do, but we know that we don't really do that much of. It's something that I know that I must do more of, but I just can't motivate myself to do. It is, I, it is something that we know it ought to be, but it's not, we're not really good at it. Someone told, me, yeah, I'm, someone told me, I'm not really good at prayer, right? But I think that kind of thinking stems from the fact that there is a misunderstanding of what prayer is. Right? I think our understanding of prayer is this type of like just asking for things, petitions, supplications that you lift up before God. Prayer is much more than that. Prayer really is about um, communing with God. Prayer at its core, at its very essence, is about having a deep, intimate communion with God. That's what prayer is. In the, in the Jewish tradition, the word prayer is called tefillia. And tefillia, right? The word prayer, the verb to pray is tefillia. And what tefillia means is basically it's, it, it means self-examination, self-judgment. So the ideal is this. The word prayer in the, in, in, in the Jewish tradition is you examine yourself in the light of who God is. You know who God is, in the light of who God is, you have a self-examination, and by doing that, you have a deeper bond with God. That's what prayer is in the Jewish tradition. It's about a self-examining, self-exam- self-examining yourself in the light of who God is so that your bond with God will, be, will, will, will become strong. So the fundamental idea of God, once again, in the Jewish tradition, is about this communal relationship. Understanding God and understanding yourself, in the, and, and that kind of, that forging of that relationship, that's what prayer is. And in the New Testament, and that's the Old Testament understanding of prayer, but a New Testament understanding of prayer is much more significant, much more deeper than that. The New Testament understanding of prayer, prayer is simply, at its core, Prayer at its core is you are communing with a triune God. 
prayer at its core is that you are fellowshipping. You are having a relationship with the God who is the, the, the triune God. What, what do I mean? God is, as you know, like the Christian, you know, the scripture says God is Trinity. God is one God, three Godhead, right? God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. There's three separate distinct people in the Godhead. All of them are one. Why is this so important? It's important because we know God, it's not just this isolated person. But God is a God who communes. God is a God who has a relationship within the Godhead. From all eternity, from all eternity, right? God has a relationship in it of itself, in it of himself. So, you know, like people say stupid things, right? That God created us because he was lonely. He wasn't lonely. He was always communing with each other. The Father, right? The Son submits to the Father. The Spirit submits to the Son. They love each other. They have this community. And God created everything based on this communal aspect. This is where I kind of geek out a little bit. Everything in the universe, everything in creation is, is basically based on this communal interrelationship, relationship, interrelationship of the Godhead. I'll make it, to, to speak it simply, everything in creation, whether it is the universe or it is in your individual selves, everything has a relationship to each other. There is nothing in the universe that is isolated. Everything is interconnected. Every, every, everything communicates with each other. Everything depends on each other. Everything orbits around each other. Our galaxies are like that. The stars are like that. Your cells are like that. Everything is interconnected. Everything has a relationship to something else. There's nothing in the universe that doesn't have a relationship to something else. Even the trees and the grass, they communicate with each other in, underground. There's this constant web of communication that is happening. Why is that? It's because everything was based on this communal nature of God who in and of himself is a, is a relational being. That's how we explain reality. Reality is everything's interconnected, everything's relational, because everything is based on the triune God. Are we clear about this? That's some deep, heady stuff that I did, man, right? It is that with human relationships, too. The reason why we have a desire to love and to be loved and to serve and to be part of a community is because we're made in the image of a triune God. We cannot help, we cannot help but to have a relationship with another human being. If we do not have a relationship with another human being, we die. I was like, I was, you know, I was listening to an interview with a Santa comedian. Not even, like, I was seeing a Santa comedian special. I love Santa comedians, they're funny. This guy, right, was clinically depressed his entire life attempted suicide a few times, went to a mental institution, had EKG, like electric shock therapy treatment. In, 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 so he did all these things, but he said the thing that made him feel most, like, most alive is he simply went outside and started having a conversation with someone. He simply just went outside to the grocery store 
and simply just had a like, it was a simple, hey, how are you doing? How's the weather? That kind of small chit-chat made his depression feel a lot better. His depression was causing him to, go, to, to not get up. He said he was sleeping 19 hours a day. He, was, he would go to bed at 10 p.m. at night and get up at 6 p.m. the following day. Because there is a depression aspect of him that says, do not go out, be isolated, be by yourself. And that idea was killing him. The fact that he was going up for a walk to a convenience store made him overcome his depression. It is absolutely clear that we are made to be interconnected. Our lives depend on it. Why? Because we're made in the image of the triune God. What makes sin so horrible, what makes sin so anti-God, is when we sin against another human being, we're destroying this harmony that God created us to be. We're we're created to reflect God's Trinitarian nature with each other, right? To be kind to each other, to serve one another, to love each other, to express love and all that stuff. That's how we're we're designed to be because we're designed by, by the triune God. But what we do is every chance we get, we want to either better ourselves in the relationship with other people, or we, have, we, we spend a lot of time judging and hating other people. That's what makes sin so tragic and anti-God and deadly, because we're destroying the triune nature of the universe. We're created to be interdependent. We're created to love, but sin is causing us to segregate ourselves out of, these, out of human beings and destroying relationships. Look, the other day, Last Wednesday, I got laser treatment on my eye. No, I'm not getting LASIK, right? I think I look better with glasses, by the way, so I'll never get LASIK. But the reason I got laser treatment is I have a really black, bad glaucoma. And glaucoma is really about the optic pressure in my eye that is killing my nerve cells, right? So it's really, really bad. Every time I go to the ophthalmolog- ophthalmologist, which is every three months, he tells me for the last three years how bad it is. It's really bad. I don't think doctors should be that ne- negative. Every time I go, it's really bad. Man of your age shouldn't be this, this condition. I get it. Right? I get it. Okay, I'm going blind. It's really bad. Right, doc? So he says, all right, so let's do laser treatment. And, the, and what, what happens is you shoot laser in your eye to, to open up an like, opening so that the pressure will be, go somewhere. And, he, and I said, does it hurt? He said, no, it doesn't hurt. Okay. So he put like, like eye drops that numb, numb this area. And he started shooting, he put like a laser, like this like prism thing in my eye and started shooting lasers. What it feels like is, it's like, have, have you done acupuncture, like needle? It's like someone like putting a hot needle in your eye. And it, it's not like, it's, it's not painful in that, like if, if it like, if you put it in there for a long time, it hurts, right? But what happens is they go, it's like the burning sensation, right? It's not too painful, but it's uncomfortable. What's painful is after it, there is this burning sensation in your eye. So especially when the sun hits you, oh my gosh, I feel like I'm a vampire melting, right? Oh, and so my wife drove me because the doctor says I can't drive after, this, after the procedure. And so like my eyes are hurting, right? Oh, and like, and it was like very bright on Wednesday. 
and we were driving, and all I wanted to do was like go home and lay down in my darkness, right? And my wife was saying, hey, in my pain, right? Whoa. She said, hey, do you mind if we stop by H-Mart? <laughs> do you mind if I just pick something up, right? Just wait for, for you to wait in the car. When she said that, Holy Spirit in my mind whispers, don't say it. Don't hate, don't do, don't say what you think you want, you want to say. Don't do it. But I did it, right? I said things that I shouldn't have said. And I felt so horrible about it since then. I didn't, like, curse her out. I didn't yell at her. I didn't do anything. Like, it was like, you know, how dare you? Don't you understand my pain? Like, that kind of a thing. But in that moment when I said it, I realized how horrible it is. Because in that very moment, I'm destroying the nature of the Trinity that God has designed for me, right? That God has told me that I should love my wife as Christ loved the church. I'm destroying that fabric of our relationship because I'm so uncomfortable. I think I'm not the only bad guy. I think y'all do it too, right? It comes so easily, so naturally, us destroying this glorious nature that God has created us to be. We're supposed to love each other as Christ and the Father and the Spirit loves each other. Sin is a violation of that. You know? Everything exists because of the triune nature of God. He is the foundation of reality. And what prayer is, is he is inviting us to have a relationship with the triune God. God is a the triune God is the foundation of everything, and through prayer, God is inviting us John 17 tells us so. John 17, Jesus prays. What does Jesus pray in John 17? This is the part where I... John 17, Jesus prays. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, I pray that they may also be in us. What Jesus is praying to the Father is this. May my people be, have the same relationship with us that I have with you. What prayer is, is we are fellowshipping with God himself, the very foundation of the universe. Everything is reflection upon him. In prayer, he is personally inviting us to fellowship with the fabric of everything, of himself. That's what prayer is. Forget your laundry list of wants. Forget your idea of some religious obligation that you have to fulfill. That's what prayer is. Prayer is nothing short of a miracle. God is saying, come fellowship with me as my son, as my spirit fellowship with me throughout all eternity so you can fellowship with me. 
people. That is what prayer is. And it's something spectacular. That's why if the reason why Jesus died for us, the reason why we become, the reason why he came to die for us and, 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 and you know, endure ultimate hell for us, it is so that we can enjoy this fellowship. Do you understand? If we don't pray, it's like we're rejecting one of the very reasons why he died, why he died, died, like why he died for us. We're saying no to that fellowship. And that's the tragedy. You know? How are we able to have that fellowship with God himself? How are we able to do that? Because we're the sons of God. I preached this sermon to my daughter yesterday, and she said, oh, excuse me, what about the daughters of God? Right? Why do you have to be also like gender-specific, Dad? public school. The reason I call all of us, including sisters, sons of God. Because when the Bible describes us as sons of God, he is describing the relationship that people in Christ have with the Father. What, what I mean is this. There is only one son of God. In the history of, in, in the entire existence, there's only one son of God, and that is Jesus Christ. There's only, he's the only son, right? He's the only son. My son is not God's son. Your, your, your children are not God's children. They're not. You're not God's children by your natural birth. You're not. We're creatures. We're wonderful creatures creating the image of God. By the way, I geeked out yesterday morning, yesterday as I was praying. Did you know, like, the structure of your brain is very similar to the structure of the universe? Did you know that? Did you know the number of like, neurons, like the number of brain cells in your head is almost the exact number of the number of stars in the galaxy? Do you know the way your brain works is very similar to the way the universe works? Did you know that? Did you know in your brain, the complexities of the universe, it is in your brain? Wow! Am I the only one geeking out? Maybe. I think that shows that we're made in the image of God. We're great divine image bearers of God, but we're not sons of God by our natural birth. Only Jesus is the son of God. But when Jesus Christ came to die for people like ourselves who destroy God's harmony all the time, he came into this world to be a servant. He went to the cross for our sins and he was destroyed under the wrath of God for the sins that we caused. Because he did that, we have been adopted. And when we believe in him, Jesus says, the relationship that I have with, with God the Father throughout all eternity, the son relationship that I have with God the Father from all eternity, that son relationship becomes your relationship with God now. Do you understand? When Jesus says, you are the Son of God, he's saying is, just as I was God the Father's Son throughout eternity, that position is now yours. The intimate fellowship that God the Son, Jesus Christ, had with God the Father is now our privilege because of what Jesus Christ has done. In Christ, 
Our position is the same as the position that Jesus Christ enjoyed. We're not Jesus Christ, obviously. We're not individual little gods. But our legal position is the same as his position with God the Father. That's why Jesus says, call me, you are no longer my friends, you are my, Jesus said, Jesus calls us his brothers and sisters because we enjoy the same position as he enjoyed with God the Father. And because we're enjoying that position with God the Father, we can pray. We can have fellowship with God because we are now sons of God. We're studying the Lord's Prayer. And by the way, small group leaders, I know like this season of leading Bible study is hard because we're doing like few verses and not chapters of Bible verses. And so this week, you know, I, I urge you, for this week and the next couple of weeks, I urge you to study the Lord's Prayer on your own. Because we're going to talk about the Lord's Prayer for the next couple of weeks. Right? So we're going to talk about the Lord's Prayer. But the most important part of the Lord's Prayer is the first part. Jesus says, when you pray, you pray, our Father who art in heaven. Jesus says, call, when you pray, call God your Father. Why? Because He is really our Father. Just as, Je- just as God the Father was Jesus' Father, God the Father is now our Father because of our position in Christ. And when you are God's Son, you have access to God. My daughter, God bless her, a little bit annoying sometimes, she just takes things, my things, without thinking about it, without asking. If there's a drink that I'm drinking, which I like, vitamin water zero, she just comes and she just drinks it. Drinks it all. Right? If there's a pen that I like, she just takes it and just uses it and loses it. Just like takes my phone, just like know my passcode, and just uses my phone. I go, that's kind of rude, no? She said, eh. She's kind of brazen about like, the way she approaches my things. Why? Because she knows I'm her dad. And she, ha- she knows she has immediate access to all my stuff. That's the access that we have with God the Father. Do you understand the amazing privilege it is to pray? You know? John MacArthur puts it like this. He says, if you are a born-again Christian, if God has purchased you for himself, then you exist in a different atmosphere than the unbeliever. The atmosphere that you, you, you exist now is where God the Father exists personally. He speaks to you. He reveals things to you. He pressures and sometimes he pressures you. There is this living sense of God in your life. It's not just me. I think a lot of you feel the same way. A dear sister of mine, I'm not going to reveal her name, because I'm not, I don't want to embarrass her. She says she, when she's in the car, she just praises God and she dances and she just praises God in the car because she loves him so That is evidence of the fact that she has access to the Father. She is in an atmosphere where God exists. And in that atmosphere, prayer is the most natural thing for you to do. Unbelievers do not pray. 
No, they cannot pray because they don't exist in that atmosphere. You understand? We can pray, and God listens to our prayers, and things happen through our prayers because we are in the atmosphere where God personally dwells. Why? Because we are the sons of God now. Prayer is a privilege that God gives to his sons. Do you enjoy that privilege? It doesn't mean that unbelievers don't pray. People pray all the time. Unbelievers pray all the time. Pagans pray all the time. Right? But their prayers are fundamentally different from our prayers. Because their prayers are not, you're, they're not communing with God. Let's talk about how unbelievers pray. Jesus in today's verse teaches us what prayer, how to pray. But Jesus also teaches us how not to pray. And the example that he gives of us how not to pray are the Pharisees, the hypocrites. What's, the, what's wrong with Pharisees? Like you know, they know a lot. They know a lot of God's word. And they try to obey God's word a lot, right? But the problem is they are trying to obey God's word without a cracked heart, without God giving them new birth. They're trying to do religious things without a cracked heart. And when you start to do religious things without a cracked heart, it just becomes a ritual. Everything just becomes a ritual. You want to do it for the sake of doing it, and there is no other, there is no internal significance. You just do it for the sake of doing it. And that is exactly what's wrong with the Pharisees. Oh, Pharisees prayed a lot. They pray a lot more than I. They, they, they certainly pray a lot more than you. They pray a lot. They pray three times a day. Long prayers. What is wrong with their prayers? It was ritualized. Where they pray was a couple of like they, they had to repeat certain prayers certain times of day. The first prayer that they lift up was called the Shema. Shema, I think. And the Shema is based on Deuteronomy chapter 6. And basically what the Shema says is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord God is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord God is one. Such wonderful promise in Deuteronomy chapter 6. But what did these dudes do and teach? They said, okay, the way you honor God is, you pray this prayer when you get up in the morning and when you go to sleep. Hear, O Israel, the Lord God is one. You get up, oh, hear, O Israel, the Lord God is one. When you go to sleep, hear, O Israel, the Lord God is one. All throughout your life, you have to repeat that prayer. And if you repeat it, you're, you're righteous. Not only that, they also had a written prayer. Um, I don't know what the written prayer is called. I have it in my notes. The written prayer that they called is known as the Shemna Israel. It's a 19-verse prayer. Three verses, are you, the first three verses... It is about, um, the first three was praising God. The first three of the 19 verses is about praising God. The next 13 verses is about asking God for things, supplication. And the last three verses is about thanksgiving to God. And they wrote it out. It was very structured. And they would have to repeat this prayer multiple times a day. 
They didn't pray like we pray, right? They, they, they stuck to a script. And they, their belief was, as long as you stick to the script and you pray the, the, the prescribed amount of prayers every day, then you're righteous. It was very ritualized. The heart was, in, was not in it. Deuteronomy chapter 6, when you meditate upon it, is amazing. But they didn't care about the meaning of Deuteronomy chapter 6. They only cared about the fact that they had to repeat it to, to meet a certain quota of prayers a day. They prayed, but it was a ritualistic prayer. Unfortunately, people pray ritualistic prayers all the time. Should I go, like, make you feel guilty a little bit? When we sing these songs, He knows my name. He knows my every thought. He hears me when I call. And something, something. Soulless, heartless, moving your mouth, praise. That's ritual, isn't it? I went to visit my wife's church sometimes. Like one, like one Sunday a week, for some reason, I go to my wife's church. They're a Methodist church. And their service, their bulletin is glorious. It's one of those thick, really expensive papers. And it has like multiple pages. And everything that is ever said in that service is printed on that bulletin. And it is glorious, right? They have like psalms. They have hymns. They sing hymns. I love hymns because it's all about God, right? They, like, they have a lot of scripture, and, we, and they just read through all that. The whole bulletin is about the magnificence of God. And when I'm in my wife's church, I geek out and go, oh, this is so beautiful. Because they're talking about God in the bulletin. But when I look at them, my left, and when I look at my right, heartless people just going through the motions and just reading it. They're reading about the magnificence of God, but there's no emotion to them. They're just going through the motions. When they're praying the prayer based on Psalm, it's as if they're reading a news article, like, like the, it's as if they're reading the business section of the newspaper. Heartless, soulless, shell of a prayer. Hudson Taylor, the great missionary to China. Born, he's a Brit, missionary to China. He was like, pour his heart for China's mission. He got sick, so he went back to the UK to recuperate. He visit, one Sunday, he visited a church, a UK church, an Anglican church, I think. And he was like, a lot of people, properly dressed, right? Oregon, right? Very, very beautiful church. And as they were beginning worship, he looked to his left, he looked to his right. And as I, what I experienced in my wife's church, he was experiencing then. People singing lifelessly, people reading lifelessly, people praying lifelessly. So he had to get out of that church. He couldn't stand worshiping like that, so he had to leave. And he said, I had to leave that service because the God that they're worshiping is not my God. 
The God that I met in China in the mission field is a God who is alive, who is glorious, who deserves all my praise. That's the God that I worship in the mission fields. What they're doing in there is not my God. Rituals. Rituals. Heartless prayers rituals. That's what Pharisees were doing. What is your prayer life like? Is it ritualistic? What's your prayer life like? You'll say, I pray when I eat, before I eat. Okay, great. I should do more of that. But do you sincerely know that this food that you eat comes from God? Or do you say the same simple sentence that you say every day? Does the meal prayer that you pray, does it impact your life? Does it really have significance? Or is it something that you just do? You say you prayed with your kids when when they fall asleep at night. Fantastic. I should do more of that. I should be more like you. I should. But is there sincerity in that prayer? Or do you say the same thing? I, what is it? Lay me down. What, what, what's a prayer that people pray? Lay me down, sleep, or something, something, something. Is it just a chanting of the same words all over again? That's ritual. Is the only time you pray here? That's ritual. Unbelievers can pray that prayer. It is not what true prayer is. You know what happens when the Pharisees were formulaic and ritualistic? You know what invariably happens to them? They pray, right? But because they're not really praying to God, because they're praying for rituals, what invariably happens is they start using prayer as a means of self-righteousness. They use prayer as a means to lift them up, lift themselves up in compared to other, other people. That's what happens when you don't have a relationship with God. Even the things that you do for his name will invariably be used so that you will lift yourself up. If there's no prayer about you, if there's no communion with God about you in your everyday life, you will use the things that you do in this church to lift yourself up, to make yourself seem better in the eyes of people. I see it a lot. Not here, all of you are humble. I'm not saying anything about you, right? But I see that in my, a lot. People, right? When they have like certain positions in church, it puffs them up. Why? They're not doing it for God. They're doing it for themselves. Ritualistic, heartless prayers leads to pride. God said, Jesus says, do not pray like them. Jesus says also, do not pray like the pagans, the Gentiles, the unbelievers. How do they pray? They pray as if they, if they babble on a lot of words, that God is somehow going to listen to them. In their minds, they think God is this unreasonable, stern, this really, like, you know, the, this traditional, like, 
dad who's like, who's like very stingy. And they think the only way to, for them to do, for God to do what they, what he, what they want him to do if they, if they just say the same prayers over and over and over and over again. You know how your kids do it? Daddy, can I, can I get something? And you say no. Daddy, please. Daddy, please. Daddy, please. No. Daddy, please. Daddy, please. Daddy, please. No. Daddy, please. Daddy, please. I will never ask for anything again. And then you give in. That's the type of thing that the way pagans pray. They say the same thing over and over and over and over and over again. As if, if, they, if they do it, they're going to wear God down. And he's finally going to relent. I prayed like a pagan back in the day. Did I tell you? I told you this. Tenth grade. Mr. Knox, history teacher. My goodness, I was scared of him. Tall, big fella. Buzz haircut. Right? I was so scared of him. And he would call on people randomly at class. And I was so scared. I wasn't this confident PJ before you. I was this shy little wallflower. Oh, I didn't want to, be, I didn't want to draw attention to myself. So every night, I would pray for one hour a day. Every night. I was super holy. I was praying one hour a day. Every night. Monday through Friday. Not weekends, because Mr. Hurley, I don't have to worry about Mr. Hurley in the weekends, right? But for Monday through Friday... No, Monday through, Sunday through Thursday, right? Sunday through Thursday, I would pray the same prayer. And this is how I pray. I said one word, one sentence. Oh, please don't let Mr. Hurley call on me. That was my prayer. Oh, Lord, please do not let Mr. Hurley call on me. I would first start off on my knees on my bed. Because, you know, holy people have to pray on their knees, right? And for, th- for 25 minutes, I would say, oh, 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 Lord, let Mr. Hurley not call on me. Oh, Lord, Mr. Hurley not call on me. After that, my knees get tired, so I would go to the window, put a Bible in my heart. Didn't read the Bible, just put the Bible in my heart, and says, oh, Lord, don't let Mr. Hurley call on me. I would do that for an hour. My mom thought I was being spiritually woken. I wasn't. I didn't care about what, what, what the Bible said and who God was. I had no idea. All I knew was I didn't want Mr. Hurley to call on me, so I was just begging God to relent. The heart of a pagan prayer is this. There's something that you want so badly. There's something that you're obsessed with something that you want so badly. And and you're not convinced that God's going to give it to you. So you beg, and you beg, and you beg, and you beg. Your prayers are nothing, nothing to do with who God is, nothing to do with the triune God, nothing to do with the fact that he's the foundation of the universe. All your prayers about is your needs and what you want. Look, Lord Prayer says, pray for your daily needs, right? That's true. And certainly, daily needs is a part of your prayer. It has to be. It's true. But if all your prayer is about your needs and the needs of your family, if there is no interest in the sovereignty of God or the reality of God or what is will for you, if there is no interest, if all you have is your needs, you are praying like a pagan. You understand? Jesus says that's improper prayer. That's not prayer that God listens to. 
What these two examples teaches us is this, and I got this from all the commentators that I read. I read like five commentators. And these two things that Jesus talks about in, 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 the, in verses 5 through, I think, 8 of chapter 6, what, these, what Jesus reveals is sin is most clearly reflected in how you pray. Sin is not just reflected in your immoral behaviors. The residue of sin is clearly reflected in how you pray, whether you pray and how you pray. You see what is inside of you, either through prayerlessness or the subject matter of your prayers. Pagan's prayers reflect self-interest above all others. Jesus says, God's will be done. God's kingdom come. You don't care a lick. Not you, but you as a proverbial just general. People do not care a lick about his will and his kingdom. If our prayer is just my will be done, my kingdom come, you're not not lifting up a prayer of a son. You're lifting up a prayer of a pagan. And if you're somehow getting all prideful, if your prayers are just ritualistic, You're not praying the prayer of a son. You're praying the prayer of a hypocrite. If there's no prayer in your life, perhaps there's no prayer because you're not a son, because you're not living in the atmosphere where God exists. It is very easy for us to say, oh, I'm not praying because I'm lazy or I don't pray because I'm too busy. No, no, no. Maybe the fundamental issue of your prayerlessness is you don't live in the atmosphere where God exists. Our prayer lives, or lack thereof, clearly reflects what is inside of you and me. How does a son supposed to pray? If you're not supposed to babble on like pagans, if you're not supposed to pray ritualistic, hypocritical, prideful prayers like the hypocrites, What does the Son of God pray for? What is a person with a cracked heart prays for? We're going to study that in the next couple of weeks, but the first thing that a person with a cracked heart, the first thing that the Son of God prays for is this, that God's name be hallowed. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. What the Son of God, what the person with the cracked heart knows more than anything else. The most important thing is for God's name to be hallowed. What does that mean for God's name to be hallowed? What does God's name mean? God's name means God's identity. In the, in the, old, in the Hebrew tradition, the name of a person right, has that, is infused with that person's identity. Right? You know, like Indian, American Indians, they, they name, traditionally, they name their like, people... You know, dance with wolves, or play with birds, or, you know, swimming in the ocean or something. It has a meaning to their names. When you say God's name be hallowed, you're saying let the identity of God be revealed. What are the names of God in the Old Testament? God is Yahweh. He is the great I am. He is reality itself. He exists independently from you. He existed. He will always exist and he will forever exist. 
He is the foundation of everything. God is El Shaddai, the Lord God Almighty, the sovereign God with strength who makes things happen. He is Jehovah Nitzi, the God who reveals himself. He is Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. Those are the names of God. When you say, hallowed be thy name, you are saying the word hallowed means to reveal, to glorify. When you're saying God's name be hallowed, you means God, let your identity, identity be seen and known throughout everyone and everything in the world. God's name be hallowed for God's identity to be revealed and glorified. That is the number one desire of a person with a cracked heart a son of God. Jesus came into this world to hallow God's name. Did you know that? Jesus came into the world to show us who God is, to reveal who God is. Jesus came to hallow God's name. Why? Because human beings are the only creatures in the entire universe who think that God's name should not be hallowed what it means to be in darkness, what it means to be in darkness is this, that you don't know the identity of God. That's what it means to be in darkness. Your mind doesn't know the identity of God. You're in darkness because, not you generally, but specifically you generally, people do not know, people are in darkness because they do not know, they're unfamiliar with the very identity of God. But a lot of you, of you here can attest when the identity of God is revealed in your life, He changes you. Doesn't He? He really does. People who are once crazy are the most normal person that I know. Why? Because God's name has been revealed in their lives. God's identity has been revealed in their lives. People with traumatic past, past hurts, unspeakable hurts and sin, when they meet the identity of God, they become changed, they become normal, they become clear thinking. Why? The name of God is revealed. I see a lot of you here. You are not the people that I knew met five years ago. Why? Because God made his self-identity be known. His name was hallowed in your life. What will change your life? His name to be hallowed. How do I know? I did a ministry Jedi mind trick last couple of years ago. There's this brother, right? So, like, you know, there was this brother that I constantly met at the metro. Kind of annoying, right? So, like, you know, I want to be in metro. When I took, used to take, take metro, I want to be alone, right? Because, like, you know, I want to think and I want to, like, read the Bible. I just want to, like, but I met this guy, like, every time, like, a couple times. Like, oh. And so one Friday, I met him at the metro, right? And he was, he was having, like, a difficult time. I said, Why, what's, what's, what's the matter, son? And he says, oh, I don't know about my job. My job prospect doesn't seem that great. It was inside the orange line. We're going home on Friday night. Right? I remember. I said, oh, I'm worried about my job. He said, I don't know what I'm going to do. And I looked at my brother, and I said, brother, who created that star that you see outside? God did. Brother, who created the train that we're riding on? God did. Brother, who created your parents? God did. My brother, who created you? God did. I asked these questions about who created all these things, and he said, God. 
And when he started to answer my questions about the sovereignty of God and everything about his God, I tell you, that train ride made his heart warm. Such a good pastor. What did I do? I didn't say, oh, God's going to take care of you. There, there, chin up, right? Whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. I didn't give him Christian cliches. I said, look at God. His name is hallowed. God is great. That understanding changes perspective. What you and I need every day is for God's name to be hallowed. This is the most practical advice I can give you. How do you hallow the name of God? First of all, you've got to know who he is. You've got to know who he is. How can you hallow the God, name of God if you don't know who he is? That's why scripture is important. But what, whether you listen to me or whether you read the Bible, don't let it just escape your mind. Hold on to it and use it to tell who God is. Every morning in my drive to work, this is how I start my prayer. You are this. You are You are the God, like, like um, tomorrow morning I'm going to say, you are the God who's, who made me son. You are the one who gave me the same position as Christ. You are the God who makes me dwell in your atmosphere. You are the God who has purchased me. You are the God that you allow me to see miracles in my life. I tell God who he is. I always start my prayer as, you are. Even if I'm tired, I say you are. Even though I'm stressed about that day, I say you are. You are, you are, you are. The more you know about him, the more you can fill your, fill your words with your you are. And I guarantee you, the more you tell God about who he is, the more his name is hallowed in your mind, your mind, your heart will find warmth. And your heart will find passion for him. When you sin, when I sin, you know what I say? I say, you are not me. I say, you are not, you don't talk to my wife just as I has just talked, just said, you don't talk to me as I talked to my wife just now. You're not, you don't humiliate people as I sometimes am prone to do. You don't, you're not, you're not like me. I, I'm prone to criticize and judge and gossip. You're not like me. You don't do that. Even your repentance, compare yourself with God and say, God, thank God you're not like me. But despite these insane things that I do, you are forgiven. It's always you are. When you pray the hollow name of God in your prayer, I guarantee you, your heart, you will be passionate for the Lord. And your prayers will be answered. You will see more of your prayers answered. You'll see your life change when the name of God is hallowed. Hallow the name of God in your prayer life, brothers and sisters. Enjoy the atmosphere of God who is in your life. But though if, the, if, the, if there's some of you here who are, who are not in the atmosphere of God, if there's some of you who are not praying because you don't exist in the atmosphere where God exists personally, 
this is your time to repent and ask God to reveal himself to you through his word, through prayer, and he will. For For all of us, let us enjoy the privilege that God has given us as sons of God. Let us enjoy the privilege of communing with the Holy Spirit and the Father and the Son, the Trinity, so that our hearts and minds be filled with him and his life. Let us pray.